My favourite sandwich shop in all the world is in Newcastle in County Down. It's called the Nutty Chef. I can picture at this moment the fresh prawns falling out of the sandwich. But what is it that makes a good sandwich and makes their sandwiches so good? We know that there are three important elements any traditional good sandwich has. Bread, butter and filling. Bread, white or brown, is legitimate of course, determined by personal taste, but it must be fresh. It's an essential element. Butter adds to the bite experience, doesn't it? And sandwich makers spread butter with great care, dexterity and skill, turning the slice of bread to ensure all four corners are covered. It's an art form in itself. And then, of course, the third and main element of the sandwich is the filling. Cheese, ham, chicken, salad, fish. Hope this isn't going to put you off the sermon now. Uh, Bread, butter and filling then comprise the key elements of a good sandwich. Today in our baptismal service, we're considering the elements of valid Christian baptism. This may be a subject that you have never thought of in your life before. Perhaps so you have witnessed some baptisms, you've never asked about this issue, what makes the valid elements of a Christian baptism. In our sermons on baptism in this congregation so far, we've considered the more popular issues such as the mode of baptism as being sprinkling, the subjects of baptism we thought of the last time as being believers and their children, But today we add to our studies and understanding of baptism by considering the elements of valid Christian baptism. While you might never have asked this question, the framers of our church standards compiled in the 17th century have considered it. They devoted a paragraph to this very subject in our Confession of Faith. It's chapter 28, paragraph 2. And in it, they identify three elements of valid Christian baptism. The paragraph reads, The outward element to be used in the sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Commentators on the confession, such as Archibald Hodge from Princeton, Robert Shaw from Scotland, G.I. Williamson from America, indicate that this paragraph, 28.2, contains the elements of valid Christian baptism, water, formula, and minister. And surely this is a useful topic for us to consider, especially today, as we will soon witness the baptism of Adi. You and I have witnessed numerous events, and while we have enjoyed those events, the full meaning and significance of them sometimes has been lost on us. Maybe we have watched the NFL match with our spouse and did so only because she enjoyed it. While you have enjoyed the popcorn, the wild celebrations by the players the spectacular touchdowns and the amazing long passes, you had absolutely no idea what was going on. The rules and the tactics were foreign to you. 
knowing the rules and the tactics, would have made the experience far more meaningful for you. And so today, considering the elements of valid Christian baptism will help all of us understand baptism better. But where did the composers of our confession get the three elements from? Did they just make them up? Did the group responsible for writing this paragraph in our confession just create them? Or did they look back through history to see how the church practiced baptism? I think they went back to the Bible. And one such instance of baptism is the one which we have read off here in the soldier Cornelius. A Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea, a seaport on the northwest of Israel. As a centurion, he had charge of a hundred Roman soldiers and he was paid five times the average wage of his time. His group belonged, verse 1 says, to the Italian cohort. A cohort being a group of 600 soldiers ruled by six centurions. But Cornelius became a Christian. And in the record of his baptism at the end of chapter 10, which we have read, the three elements of valid Christian baptism are found. And we think of these three elements today. Firstly, the element of water. The first element of valid Christian baptism is water. We have heated this up uh, here uh, uh, for, for, for Addy just uh, makes it the startling experience less for her. In verse 47, the apostle Peter uses the definite article before water. So he actually says, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people? That is, as Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, indicates, the water for baptism. Thus, water is an element in valid Christian baptism. And three aspects of this element of water are important. Its simplicity, its symbolism, and its size. Its simplicity. Water. Plain water from a Caesarean river, well or spring, is what is meant. There was no requirement by the Apostle Peter for Cornelius to order a foot soldier to hot-foot it up to Jerusalem to get some special kind of water from the holy city. As if water from Jerusalem contained some magical elements in it. Perhaps this point is, is obvious to us. But it is important. In the Old Testament, various ceremonies were performed by using oil. In Roman Catholic baptism, additional elements are added to the water of baptism in the belief that they will infuse some measure of efficacy into the element of baptism. John Calvin mentions this practice in his day in commenting on verse 47. He says, the apostles were content with water. But some think 
that the worthiness of baptism is adorned with oil, salt, spittle, wax candles. But the command of the apostle Peter is the water, plain, ordinary, solitary water. So today, Addy will be baptized by good old Newtonard's tap water, what the people of Newcastle in England call council pop. But secondly, the symbolism of this water, the simplicity of this element is important because of the symbolism of the water. To add spittle or salt to the water not only distorts the element, but destroys the symbol. So what does this element before us here of water symbolize? It symbolizes in our lives and in our church cleansing, the removal of dirt. This is found in our passage in verse 43. Peter closes his sermon with the words, Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's very clear in the context from the work of God in the hearts of Cornelius and his family that the people here believed in Jesus. And as believers in Jesus, they were forgiven of all of their sins. Each one of them, from the centurion down to the slave, were sinners before God, just as we all are. But anyone, everyone who trusts in Jesus, who died on the cross for sin, as we receive him as our saviour, we are forgiven by God. God's forgiveness removes our guilt takes away the black parts of our lives, cancels our liability to judgment for the ugly and sinful words, thoughts and deeds that we have done. It is cleansing, like water washing away dirt. Hence, water is a fitting symbolism in baptism, symbolizing the forgiveness of God. But a third important aspect of water is the size. The term withhold used by Peter here seems to suggest that the water was brought into the room where Peter was. It was to be carried, transported, brought from another location into this location. This indicates the amount of water was not large. And that consequently the mode of baptism was not by immersion, but by sprinkling. Albert Barnes comments, The expression here used is one that would naturally refer to water being brought, that is, to a small quantity, and would seem to imply that they were baptized not by immersion, but by pouring and sprinkling. And so we'll not be immersing Addy today, but, but sprinkling. We have a wide choice of additions to water when we eat our lunch, don't we? We can add juice, coffee beans, chocolate, or even bovril. We also have a range of add-ons to water when we wash. We can add shampoo, soap, or bubble bath. But in valid Christian baptism. <laughs> 
we are required to use only water to preserve the symbolism of forgiveness. The order of salvation first and then baptism in this narrative enforces the teaching of the Bible that baptism does not save any one of us. Salvation can occur at the moment of baptism or before baptism as in this narrative or after baptism as God pleases. But the point is, baptism is no magic ceremony that saves a person. We can get into heaven without being baptized. And Connor and Esther, as they raise Adi, will be teaching her that salvation is only through faith in Jesus. But nonetheless, Cornelius and his household were baptized. Though they were evidently saved by divine grace, they were still baptized. Thus, baptism is an important action in the Christian church. It is not as important as salvation, but it is still important. And so, it is good that Esther and Connor want Addie to be baptized. Its importance is not found in the fact that Esther and her parents were baptized or that this is the custom in our church or that it gets the family together like today, but in that Jesus commanded baptism. In verse 48, Peter commands them to be baptized only because Jesus had commanded Peter to baptize those who believed. Baptism, therefore, is not an option for church members. It is an act of obedience to Jesus as our Lord. The first element, then, of valid Christian baptism is the water. The second element that we'll hear today is the formula. That is the words uttered at the moment of baptism. A sermon is to precede the baptism as we're doing now, full of many words, illustrations and applications. But a formula is to be used at the very moment of baptism. This refers to the formula given by Jesus in the Great Commission. Just as he gave us words to use in our praying to God in the Lord's Prayer, so also he gave us words to use At baptism, the words are, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are the names of the three persons of the Godhead. Valid Christian baptism, therefore, announces a link between the baptized person and the Christian God. In this narrative, we have a shortened version of the fuller baptismal formula in the words recorded in verse 48. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This shortened formula is used in place of the full formula. Commentators indicate that Father and Spirit are prominent in this narrative and are therefore implied in this shortened formula. The shortened formula occurs in other accounts of baptism in chapter 2, 8, and 19 of the book of Acts. However, 
The common understanding of the early church and their practice in the early centuries was to use the full formula which we will use today. But what does the formula mean? Why utter this formula at baptism, especially if it does not affect anything in Yon Adi? The formula is not a magic formula like Agra Kadabra, but it is a Christian formula. In the case of adults being baptized, the formula indicates they are committing themselves to the Christian triune God. They've renounced paganism, atheism, agnosticism, and have given themselves totally to the character, laws, and service of the Christian God. The titles used here, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Kistemacher explains, denotes all that the scripture discloses about the coming, the office, and the functions of Jesus. Adults in baptism commit to these. And this was massive for this soldier, Cornelius. He had called Caesar his Lord. He had worshipped Caesar as his God. But now, Jesus was his Lord. And this is announced in the formula of baptism. In a UK, UK law court, a witness is required to accept a formula which requires that they tell the truth. There's a standard formula which they commit to. I do solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The witness commits herself to truth in that formula. So in baptism, a person commits herself to the living and true Christian God. Now obviously, Addy is, is not old enough to understand the nature laws of our God. But Esther and Connor do. That's their mother and father. They're making that decision for Adi. They are saying in the second element of valid Christian baptism that they want Adi to be raised in the Christian faith with Christian values. They are choosing Adi's religion for her. Just as Connor and Esther have chosen the name of their daughter. Incidentally, it was Esther's nickname uh, concocted by her brother Caleb uh, when they were young. They will choose her school in due time. So they are choosing her religion today. That religion is the religion of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They will bring Addy up in their home and church in the Christian faith. But our church catechism also teaches that children and adults are to be affected by this formula retrospectively. They argue that we are to improve our baptism as we grow older. That is, that children are to be reminded by their parents of this commitment to the Christian God in this second element of valid Christian baptism and urged 
to live out that commitment in their lives by actively committing themselves to God as Savior and Lord. They are to improve their baptism as they grow older. In all their relationships, in their circle of friends, in their hobbies, in their choice of careers, baptized children are to reflect on this commitment to the triune God made on their behalf by their parents and live in a befitting manner. So while Cornelius was saved before his baptism and his baptism evidenced his commitment, we are to remind infants and remind ourselves of our duty to improve our baptism. Maybe you've been baptized a long time ago. Then improve your baptism. Live out that commitment to the triune God which your parents made on your behalf. And thirdly and lastly, the minister. The third element of valid Christian baptism is a lawfully ordained minister. In this passage, there is some uncertainty as to who performed the baptisms in the house of Cornelius. Lenski argues that it must have been the apostle Peter because no one else would be allowed to baptize on such an important occasion of the gospel being brought to the Gentiles for the first time. However, every other commentator that I have read argues that it was not Peter who baptized them, but the six men Chapter 11, verse 12, who came with him from the church in Joppa, the seaport, 31 miles down the road. This would not be unusual, for Jesus never baptized anyone who believed in him. And Paul baptized few people that were becoming Christians through his ministry. And we understand their reluctance to do that. The cult of the celebrity is nothing new. So apostles baptizing had the potential for rivalry among congregations. One group of people baptized by the apostles could consider their baptism to be superior to another group. Nonetheless, the baptism of Cornelius still takes place under the guidance, the supervision, and the authority of Peter, verse 48. He commanded them to be baptized. So why, you're asking, is this a third element of valid Christian baptism? Why is it important that a lawfully ordained minister, yours truly, performs the baptism? Why can't any Christian baptize another Christian? Well, this rule does not mean that the lawfully ordained minister has special powers to convey blessing to an infant in baptism We will pray for blessing, but we cannot convey that blessing. Further, this rule rejects the belief that the action of baptism itself has any magical powers. Roman Catholics teach that anyone can baptize infants in extreme circumstances. So if a baby in hospital is critically ill... A nurse can baptize the infant and should baptize the infant in the belief 
that baptism will forgive the original and actual sins of the infant up until that point. So in restricting baptism to lawfully ordained ministers, we reject the belief that baptism is efficacious. So why limit baptism to lawfully ordained persons? We do so because baptism has to be preceded by the preaching of God's word as we're doing now, which includes an explanation of the meaning of baptism. Just as Peter here preached a sermon on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, arguing that salvation is only through faith in Jesus and that baptism symbolizes but does not effect our cleansing. Thus the element of a lawfully ordained person to explain the meaning of the sacrament of baptism properly is to safeguard the meaning of baptism, which has been and is widely misunderstood as we have seen already this morning. Visiting the museum, guided by a member of the staff, you want the guide to be a person of knowledge, an authority on the paintings and the figures she is commenting on. You don't want a person who guesses or makes it up as she goes along. You want someone who has done her homework. And so at baptism, you want someone vetted by the church, trained by the church, authorized by the church to explain the proper meaning of baptism. And so as the lawfully ordained minister, I've already visited Connor and and Addie, Esther, in, in their home to explain the meaning of baptism. In the sermon today, we have sought to answer some of the wrong opinions on baptism and set out its true meaning. But now knowing the true meaning of baptism, how will it affect you? If you're not yet a Christian, isn't this a powerful message to you? An infant receiving the symbol of divine forgiveness means that Addie, young and beautiful and fun though she is, needs forgiveness. How much more those of us who are older. And baptism declares that there is forgiveness with God to all who repent and believe in Jesus. Such forgiveness symbolized in baptism is not pie in the sky. It's not a figment of our imagination. As the element of water is real, so is the offer of God's forgiveness in Jesus to us at this very moment. Let us receive it as this first century soldier did. But if you are a Christian, baptism not only assures us of our forgiveness, but challenges us to forgive others. As we have been forgiven, let us forgive. Is there anyone in the congregation who has wronged you? As you witness the water being sprinkled on Adi and are reminded of God's cleansing of your heart, 
forgive the wrong that has been done to you. So here are the three elements of valid Christian baptism, water, formula, and minister. And one striking feature of this narrative, which includes the three elements, is that the validly baptized group asks the apostle Peter to stay around. Verse 48, then they asked him to remain for some days. Despite being baptized, they recognized their need of more teaching and fellowship to grow in their Christian lives. Baptism was not the end of the road for them. It was the beginning. And for Adi and Hope and Connor and Esther today and for all of us, baptism is to be the beginning of our church involvement and development. Baptism as in the instance of Cornelius, was followed by commitment and involvement in the church.